Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 7, Hookman. Let's get this show on the road. Welcome back, everyone. It's nice to be back after a little hiatus. Hope everyone had a lovely holiday season. Hopefully everybody got some time to really, to just rest and recuperate, you know, from from this year, this entire year. <laughs> and let's start fresh in 2021, Exactly. Right? It's the same reason why we took our break here is because even ourselves, we need time to recuperate and relax and make sure our mental health is taken care of. Drew, would you like to welcome us back from break with our first recap of 2021? I'm excited. All right. Three, two, one. We start with a girl getting ready for a date. Her roommate convinces her to wear something a little bit sexier. There's a lot of stuff to talk about in that scene we'll get to later because a lot of things to talk about in that season we'll get to later. Uh, goes on date. Guy gets a little handsy. Uh, they hear something outside the car, the scraping noise, and they can't see what it is. Stupid boy gets out of car to go investigate because boy is stupid. Um, something smacks car. Girl gets scared, hides in car, eventually gets brave enough to leave. You know, not just take the car and drive away, but actually get out of the car and go on foot where the scary thing is. And finds this boy that she was on a date with hanging upside down uh, from the bridge. Clearly murdered. Uh, cut to the brothers. They are trying to figure out where their next stop is. Clearly dad doesn't want to be found. So let's just keep looking for mysteries. And this girl describes an invisible killer. That seems up our alley. Let's go to this little small town. And we get to discover another one of our classic legends, the Hookman. The brothers do their research. This time we actually do really quickly get to the bottom of who the Hookman is and even tie him to uh, previous murders in this town. Uh, suddenly we find out that this girl's roommate is killed. And then finally, after they think they've solved this, it turns out a thing goes after her father, who was their prime suspect. They eventually try to find the weapon or the hook from the original killer to get rid of the killer and instead wind up facing him mano a mano, brother a brother, and save the day. Weirdly, a short recap. A very short recap. You have one minute and 17 seconds left. We will talk about pace in critical time because I found that this episode was strangely paced and I look forward to talking about that with you. Yeah, like I'm trying to think of scenes like I'm trying to like when I do the breakdowns, my kind of mental math is to go cut by cut and pick out like the key moments of things that are worth bringing up. But a lot of scenes just seemed, I don't want to say unnecessary because they do move the plot forward, but mm -hmm. not worth discussing. It's a slow episode at the end of the day, I think. And it helps to develop Sam, really. This is a Sam episode. Mm -hmm. I can agree. I think this is right? definitely where we're going to see, we see a lot more of Sam. Although we do mm -hmm. get a nice little bit of Dean growth in this episode. I feel like he plays both sides of the coin very well. There are many moments where I just look at him and like shake my head disapprovingly. But then there's a lot of little moments where I'm kind of like, Hey, I'm proud of you for making the right choice. <laughs> it's, it's a good dichotomy of him. Yeah. The beauty of how the brothers are written in the first few seasons mm -hmm. and how they're not just one tone. 
they're very rich and deep there's just something really special about the way that those characters are written at that time but they are very as you said rich characters they are very deep i feel like so many shows the cliche writing tool is make a character make them very one note so that you can eventually change that note and it's a big shock mm-hmm. for the audience but here they've decided to really flesh out these characters give them mm-hmm. complex and deep personalities that are not as one note i think mm-hmm. you can describe both of them in like a few short words to kind of like really sum them up if you tried but you would never get it across right because mm-hmm. of how well developed they are from such an early standing point mm-hmm. that's so true that's so true. All right, let's put a pin in this for now. Yes. And let's just move on. And very quickly, there's one thing that I want to mention. Oh, please. Uh, and I know that you want to talk about that a little bit later, but this is actually the first time that we see the brothers salting and burning bones or remains. Yes, I thought to say it in the recap, but I wanted to be quick. Yeah, it's our first time seeing this. They've mentioned it before. But yeah, you're right. Let's put a pin in that. We're going to get to that later. Pull over into story time. <laughs> We discussed already that this is a pretty Sam-centric episode, mm-hmm. so I guess my a lot of my observations have more to do with Sam. Again, though, watching this in hindsight, after having watched the finale, I couldn't help but pick out a few things that just sort of like spoke to me mm-hmm. in this episode, like little sparklets. In the sermon that Lori's dad is giving about the passing of her boyfriend, he says, you know, a life unlived is the saddest of passings. And that just made me so sad. I mean, it's sad because it speaks to Jessica. Mm -hmm. It's sad because it speaks to Mary. It's sad also because it speaks to the brothers and how their lives have been spent unlived in certain ways. And throughout this episode, we're seeing Dean particularly experience college life which he's never really even had an opportunity to try. It's a life of sacrifice. They sacrifice their social life. They sacrifice their love life. They sacrifice their family life. I mean, everything has to be sacrificed. They can't be close to anybody Mm -hmm. except each other. A life unlived is the saddest of passings. I'm glad you brought that one up. That is a really good point. I'm glad you brought that one up. I'm really, really happy we didn't let that one uh, fly by. And of course, it's a good time to mention if we actually have missed something in a past episode. Fans, please let us know. Yes, listeners, please, please let us know. Contact us. If there's anything that we are missing or that we sort of glossed over or something that really means something to you, feel free to give us a call send us a voicemail via our gmail account or send us an email if you'd like whatever feels more comfortable we are we are only two people we we have our different views we view we watch our media in different ways we have different upbringings and backgrounds but we are Mm. an incredibly small slice of the pie of humanity yeah the things we've not experienced and wouldn't know to look for know to catch there's thousands of things please let us know what we missed speaking of things that are missed i hear the boys are missing their dad this episode (laughs) wow segue very nice beautiful transition there drew congrats very professional thank you (laughs) years of talking yes years of talking (laughs) so yeah the boys are missing their dad one of the the important points narratively is that Lori is just so angry at her father, mm-hmm. right? Of course, it's it's no accident that she's angry at her dad and not angry at potentially her mom, right? Lori is meant to be a mirror for the boys, particularly for Sam. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, you know, Lori is angry at her dad for not acting on the values that he preaches, right? 
uh, religion, morality. He's dating a married woman. Yeah. And she's clearly upset about that. And she's acting as a mirror for Sam. So if we think about how angry she is, and not only at her dad, actually, she's angry at her boyfriend, who, like you said, gets a little handsy. She's angry at her friend for trying to make her show more skin. She's angry at her dad, and then she's angry at herself. And I'm sort of wondering... What, how you think that that translates to Sam if Flory is meant to be a mirror for Sam? Well, then I have a really interesting take on one of those deaths that I think we're going to differ on a little bit. Ooh, interesting. Go ahead. I love it when we disagree. <laughs> the first, so let's do them in the order you brought them up. So let's go with the boyfriend okay. first, which I think is a very clear one that is just a matter of being uncomfortable. I don't see a major link to Sam, except that I, I think we've kind of seen with him even in this episode, I think it make it a little more evident. He is very close off to the idea of a relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, he does kiss her, but as much as I feel like the ending was kind of meant to, like the end of the episode, they saved the day, spoilers, and Dean walks away leaving Sam alone, there's a moment where a kiss could happen, and right away I'm thinking like, I don't want the kiss to happen, I don't think it should happen. And it doesn't, and then it occurs to me, I don't think it was so much of a, it wasn't necessary, because I think she full-on wanted to kiss Sam. I don't think Sam was ready to accept it again, because he's Mm -hmm. not over Jess. So I think that's where Mm -hmm. that connection is, the idea of locking himself out uh, of intimacy. Again, Mm -hmm. not drawing a parallel to the way this now-dead date was treating her. But mm-hmm. I think that's what the only connection there is to the to that scenario is Sam's inability to be intimate at the moment. Yeah, no, for sure. So I absolutely agree with that. But do you, do you not think that the connection is also so that they're able to connect about losing a loved one? From that angle, yes. I'm trying to go... So at the angle... So yes, 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 I agree. I think what I'm trying to do, though, are more of if the roles were reversed, if Sam were the one mm. being haunted what of his existing character traits would be showing off in these three deaths. So the reason why someone touching him, getting too sexual or too handsy with him, would be he's not ready to open up that way. Mm -hmm. The attack on her father would mirror just the pain Sam feels against his father. I mean, John Mm -hmm. has not only inadvertently roped him into coming back to this lifestyle i mean at the end of the day yeah he blames himself for jess's death but he's only in this as far as because of his father as far as he knows this lifestyle Mm -hmm. this this knowledge this you know that burden of knowing this is all because of john of course Mm -hmm. there's some resentment for dad and then on top of this we have this he's clearly avoiding them thing yeah and then the one that i really think is the most interesting is as you said, all of these deaths are because Taylor, right? Lori. Lori, why did I get Taylor? Well, Taylor cool. is the roommate. Okay, okay. So of all these deaths, <laughs> the only one that doesn't make sense to me until this very moment is Taylor's death because Lori seems to be okay with her. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, there's that part of her that I think has, like, understands that morally what she's doing is, like, you know not moral and i say with air quotes because that's just basically using religion as a slut shame which is wrong but i think it's less that she feels that way about taylor it's because her father feels that way and she's channeling her father this is the the johnisms that rochelle was uh, talking about a few episodes prior right Mm -hmm. so the boys have internalized dean has internalized the johnisms Mm -hmm. 
right? And they come out every once in a while. In this case, I think Lori has internalized her dad's isms. emotions. Her dad's isms, yes, thank you. <laughs> and and then they come out as as and and Dean is actually the one to point that out and we'll come back to that too but Dean is the one who says oh okay so the spirit latches onto repressed emotions yeah if anyone knows about repressed emotions it's uh, definitely Dean you're totally right you're yeah. totally right so, so i don't i don't think so again if we use the the simile of Sam like where would this tie into Sam i don't think there's a specific example per se but i think there's just this level of Though Sam has this disdain for his father, for what he has done and what he's put him through and what he's made him into, he still channels so much of his father. I mean, if you have to put John in as few as words as possible, like we talked about earlier, John is constantly trying to save the day. He has dedicated mm -hmm. his life to hunting demons. Unlike the brothers who were basically thrown into it because of John, John was faced with a demon and decided to set his life to getting revenge and in the process saving people, Sam is now in the same boat. Sam's like, I want to just, like, if we have to do this, we better be saving people, which yeah. is very John. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, we get this, re you're, I mean, to go back to your original point and thank you for leading me down this road, we get this really interesting connection between the two of them. It's just such a weird, again, damn it, this team, this writing team is so impressive. <laughs> It's, so it's really interesting because, again, like we get to know a little bit more about Mary in future seasons, mm -hmm. but we get to know about John a lot in, in this season and in, in seasons coming up. And I've always wondered why Sam and Dean are such an excellent team. And I would argue, and, and this is something that will come up at one point, but basically Sam and John are very similar in the way that they approach life and just things and situations and people hmm. and Dean and Mary are really quite similar in the way that they repress their emotions. <laughs> oh, good. Good. That's what I wanted to be. <laughs> good. Great. Another one. Great. Oh, so it's, it's just really interesting to see. Oh, I mean, they didn't have a chance. They didn't stand it. No, but it's true. And we will see exactly why they didn't stand a chance. Like they, they anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> But the, the, you know, like we learn later, the union of John and Mary Winchester was a very big deal up in heaven. Oh. Yes. Like, again, I do know looking forward a little bit with the bit of knowledge I have of the show from when I started watching it. I know that a, I forget if it's a war between heaven and hell is a thing or if there's just a, some sort of battle between the two more than normal. But I know there is a very big tie to the brothers and their relationships to heaven and to hell. Mm -hmm. And... I did not know that Mary and John were in the same way like that. I am very intrigued uh, to learn more about her. Yes. Damn it. it. It'll be very interesting to, to get there. Um, but for now, oh, speaking of heaven, though. Oh? Yeah, speaking of heaven, in this episode, we have the very first mention of angels. We do. Yes, I did clock right? that. Right? Could you remind yes. us the instance, though? Because I'm being very honest. I remember it coming up and reacting to it, but I can't remember why or how. <laughs> Yes, so it's in the church when Sam and Dean are burning the silver. Yes. And Lori is upstairs and Sam goes to see her and she's really upset. She is understanding that, you know, somehow whatever is happening is happening because of her. And she's saying, you know, I've read about avenging angels. So, yeah, I didn't remember that angels came up so early in the first season. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just really interesting to see like, oh, something peppered in like that. 
it's a no, fun I little love that, fun that little is, bit of foreshadowing. That is one of those things. Like I know foreshadowing is like it, it's it's done a lot. It's a very easy tool, but it can be so nice to go back and catch those things. I do it a lot in video mm-hmm. games or in other TV shows and movies, and it's just when you realize like oh it was there the entire time. At that point, they weren't planning on necessarily bringing on angels. Like that wasn't quite part of the plan. Hmm from a production standpoint but it's just really funny to see the the you know the lore of angels coming mm-hmm. up so early so I, I was really quite happy about that so another little fun bit of well fun no tragic bit of foreshadowing near the end Lori is talking about how you know how she's feeling so isolated and everyone close to her gets hurt and is told to have faith through it all no she's being told like you know have faith and she's she's angry about that. She's angry about the people telling her to have faith, and in particular her father at this point. And I just, again, could not help but looking at this from my standpoint, mm-hmm. which is I know what happens later. And this is just such tragic foreshadowing for Sam and Dean in each in their different way. Well, I mean, yeah, like as soon as you said that, and I'm trying to like right away, rule of thumb in story time, Mary says a thing, and I immediately go, Oh, this is more meaning than I thought. What does it mean? Oh, wow, it's really right there on the table when you think about it. <gasps> this is amazing. But right away, <laughs> my my brain, my gears and my brain start turning and I'm like, oh, that's like Sam and Dean. They are constantly being told to just do what they've been taught to do, to just follow along, to have faith in their system because things will work mm-hmm. out. And yeah, they're both tired of it. I mean, you think they want to be out here looking for their dad when he could either A, be dead and they're wasting their time and this is all just a tragic mess, or B, he's Mm -hmm. actively avoiding them somehow? Like, neither one of these is a good situation. It really isn't. And I mean, they're being asked in this, at this time in the story, the boys are being asked to have faith in their dad. Their dad, who has not been the most stable mm-hmm. uh, figure in their lives, right? And yet they're being so they have they currently have a dad that they don't know if he's alive or dead. But their only chance at finding him is to keep faith that he's still alive, and that at some point they will find him, or that he will make himself known to them. You know, at the beginning, Dean says, like, dad doesn't want to be found. Yeah. John is actively, according to them, John is actively hiding from them. I wanted to bring up just a couple of things about Dean. Yes, please. Of course. So there's this really interesting moment at the very beginning for Rich's funeral, where so the boys are, are walking into the church and then they're sitting down and the reverend is about to finish his sermon. And then Sam has to, like, nudge Dean for him to like bow, bow his, his head, head down and say, yeah exactly and say like amen etc and it's, it's just so interesting to me because this little bit there that we that we see and hear or not even we didn't we don't even hear anything but what we see is just becomes so important later because it shows already that Dean has a lack of faith and that although he has a blind faith in his father at the moment, that's what he displays, he lacks faith in almost everything else. But I also think it goes back to what we said last episode, which is their inability to blend in because they are so different. Mm. Like at the same time, if Sam were actually bowing his head in prayer, he would not be looking around to notice Dean not doing it. Which means he's also kind of just playing along because it's the thing you're supposed to do. Yeah, you know what? I agree with that. I I like that interpretation. And I will also bring up what you said in 
Phantom Traveler, where you said, you know, that Sam doesn't always trust Dean to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> he's like, you know, it's it's Christo, right? Like, you know this, right? <laughs> and there's and no excuses time you're on a plane about to crash. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that Sam is also aware that Dean is just not always trustworthy either. Mm-hmm. So again, it shows a lack of faith of Sam in Dean. So I just, again, like it's just interesting to see like these holes, like these faith-shaped holes in the boys. It's the fact that they have so much faith in so many different things, but then clearly have faith in none of it. Yeah. Yeah, they have faith in their father. They've gone to the book for advice. They've followed everything he's taught them. They have faith in their father, but I guarantee you none of them trust him right now and have no faith in him. But they're playing Mm. the I have faith because they need to. Mm, Interesting. Ooh, again, so basically they're repressing their lack of faith. Mm -hmm. So, okay, again, because I've been wondering about this. Like, what is the theme of this episode? Because usually I come up, I I try to come up with, with a theme for the episode so that it can guide our conversation, but... This week, I really had trouble finding it because there were just so many things, you know, like that idea of faith, that idea of repressed emotions, and also like carrying pieces of people with you. So like Dean carries the Jonisms, Lori carries like her father's mentality, Sam carries Jess around. I don't know. I just feel like this episode is so rich in possible lenses to analyze it through that it was hard for me to just pinpoint one this week. Now, let's keep that in mind, your, the, the theme that we came up with, for this little point here. So Sam is usually the bringer of knowledge, right? We've, mm-hmm. we've established that. We know this. But in this episode, we have an interesting dynamic. Touched upon it before, uh, very quickly. So something interesting is happening with Dean, where he's the one who's able to formulate the idea that the spirit latches on to repressed emotions. And he also is able to verbalize so well that Laurie is conflicted about the morality or immorality of her father's dating choices. And I am wondering what that says about Dean, who is usually so unable to verbalize emotions, yet he's so able to recognize repression and conflict (laughs) in someone else. Specifically about their father. Well, specifically about sexuality also. Wait, let's try this little game. I compared Lori and Sam at your request. Let's do a Dean and Lori real quick. Ooh. Yes. Okay, go, go, go. So obviously the first one, the bad touch is, if we again go through the queer coding, is the, I don't want to go that far because it's not who I am. Assuming they Mm -hmm. were in another, the roles were reversed completely and the genders were reversed. Again, there has got to be some part of Dean that, as we, we, what do you mean? There's some part of Dean. The part that was clearly displayed to us in the episode with the shapeshifter, where it is clearly Mm -hmm. evidently stated that Dean hates his life and everyone leaves him. So some uh, anger towards dad. And then we get to Taylor. Taylor, who's living her life the way she wants in her own sexual freedoms, which he can't. Uh, I hate how much this makes sense. <laughs> I love that we're right. We're so right. Oh, uh, but it just hurts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it just really hurts. It's interesting because a lot of the things that I've read about Dean... And his queer coding, the queer coding apparently, like from from the analyses that I've read before, the queer coding seems to start a little bit later. And yet we're starting, like we are finding instances. Of course, they're very subtle, right? Like I'm not saying that any of this 
would mean that Dean is necessarily queer. But yet we're starting to see some push and pull that we're not seeing with Sam. There's always the argument of you find the points you want to find. Like, if Yes, confirmation you, bias. Con- thank you. That was the term I was looking for there. I was about to give a whole explanation <laughs> of what I meant, but yes, con- con- <laughs> with confirmation bias. Well, but, but please explain what confirmation bias is. Oh, I think it's sorry. important. It's a great point. So confirmation bias, for those who aren't familiar with the term, is when you find what you're looking for because you are so heart set on finding it. Yeah, exactly. It's basically when you fall in love with your own results so much, like in, in, in a in a more scientific way of looking at it, when you, we say fall in love, but like when you are so attached to your results that you try and find only the literature that will support your point. So with confirmation bias explained, there is queer coding to Dean. I have full belief that he will inevitably wind up being a queer character, whether it is blatantly stated in the show or is only theorized later on, because I know there's a lot Mm -hmm. of controversy at the end of the series how that goes, but I'm outside of that. But given that I've accepted this this truth to me, people could turn around and say, well, you're biased. You are finding reasons that he's queer-coded that other people might not. But as I think you were trying to bring up is we analyze both these boys so much and I can't really think of any moments where Sam comes across as queer-coded really ever. So far, no. He will at some point, and I'm very excited to get to that. I am and too. Sam is just such a wonderfully complex character. But at the moment, we're, we're really it's really Dean that we're seeing mm-hmm. as queer-coded. And I I just find that fascinating. And with that in mind, let's move on to critical time. Let's get into it. So to start this segment, I wanted to do something that I've been really excited to do for a while. And I only got to dive into it a bit with Wendigo. And that's discuss the creature of the week. With the Hookman legend, unlike some of the other, not actually a lot like a lot of the past legends. So the two I can really focus on here are the Lady in White or Woman in White and Bloody Mary. Unlike those two legends, this is one with a bit more history that's a little more concrete, albeit still incredibly vague. So looking Mm. up this piece of mythology, it is very rooted in the Americas. It is very much an American legend, a lot like Lady in White, although there are variants in other parts of the world. We do have a few cases of actual murders that took place. In the 30s, so looking at 1930s, there were people being killed or being attacked at least. These are some of the earliest cases of known serial killers. They had a bit of an M.O. They tended to be going after teens or young lovers. Most commonly, I believe the ones I've looked up, a lot of the ones that did survive. I don't know why I air quoted did survive. (laughs) They did survive. That did survive, (laughs) quote unquote. (laughs) But of the ones that have survived... They were a lot of young couples that just happened to get away in time or drive off and Mm. only saw something. And they weren't, they were never, they were never claimed to be paranormal. They were just a killer. Uh, A lot of these cases were never solved. There were suspects, but there was never enough to go after them. But again, this is the 30s. What tools they had at their disposal, a lot less. And then we get to a newspaper column where somebody has written in to the advice column to share a story about a maniac going after couples necking at Makeout Point or Lover's Lane of whatever you want to call it. And this published article in an advice column warning against this, you know, I say public shows of affection, but, you know, like driving your car up to a remote area and making out or hooking up in a car because there's a killer on the loose is our first 
written piece of documentation of Hookman. Okay. It was disproven. It turns out this person had just written a story <laughs> to scare people off from making out because they were opposed to it. I knew um, it. I was like, but are you sure that this is not just a question of like the morality of it? You know, like the morality police being like, oh, be very careful. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. A few professors of literature have actually even compared the way she wrote it and the way she described little bits of it. And that, it's a very short letter. You can find it online. Mm-hmm. The way she kind of described it are very similar to existing pieces of literature from old England, like as far back as the 1800s of a killer who seems very ordinary by day and is killing people with an MO, like, before serial killers were widespread and Mm well-known. And then it was closer to the 1950s when, whether there's a direct relationship to the story or if it's just enough of word of mouth getting on, the legend started to become mainstream. And again, there are a thousand and one variations of the story, from him being an escaped mental patient to being a serial killer to being a ghost. Mm. The only real thing we ever have that really concises this story is the hook as a weapon. And I think in every version I could find, at least, it's a couple and usually the man dies. Okay. There are a few cases where they both survive and there's a few mm-hmm. cases where neither survives. Okay. And there's also the rare one, too, where the guy will leave and come back and find her the girl dead in the car okay so basically like it's pretty interchangeable yeah it's pretty interchangeable but it seems to follow the very classic horror story of horror myths like this always sort of go into two buckets there is the warning which this falls into this is the this is the scary thing that happened because they did a thing so the Mm -hmm. thing in this case is sneaking off to go make out in a car somewhere which Mm -hmm. some people might say is wrong but I say go and do you. And as a result, they were murdered or attacked or scared off. Okay. Versus versus Bloody Mary, who is more of a scary story to dare you into doing something, trying to push you to do something. You know, how many of us grew up in a town where there was a spooky house and it was tradition to go up and ring the bell? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that's a, luckily, not too many around me, but I, I've heard of a few. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's interesting. So that, that is all there really is about the Hookman. It really doesn't have a... Very concise start point, but a lot of little tidbits that kind of lead us to believe that the legends did begin as, well, a warning in a newspaper by someone who was inadvertently or not trying to, but kind of plagiarizing old British stories and may also tie into some actual murders that did occur. But the concept of a spirit or the weapon being a hook are really just flavors that were added to the story as it got told over and over again. Well, you see, I find that really interesting because it seems like the story is fairly well developed. There's a murder weapon, you know, there's like the idea, like the morality idea, but yet it's still vague enough that the writers could play with it a little bit. And I find that those are that's probably the lore that I assume would be the easiest to write for because you have guidance without being caged in 100% to a very strict lore yeah my that was my biggest complaint when it came to the Wendigo albeit they did Mm -hmm. I still say some pretty decent justice by comparison to most media you have a very real you have a very solid foundation for a legend that deviating Mm -hmm. from it kind of feels wrong Whereas yeah. here you have such a wide gamut of stories and variations and details that being a spirit, being a preacher, the weapon being a hook, being haunted, 
all of those things mm-hmm. are very fine. Mm-hmm. And I then wanted to see if there was one other detail about the first killing in the episode, specifically how she finds him dead. Oh, suspended by the feet from a from a tree? Hanging up, just, just being hung upside oh, down. So the hung, hung upside, upside down, down does actually appear in a few variants of the legend. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the idea of something scraping along the top of the car being like, you know, his, his hand hanging there. But I know from experience that uh, you have brought up in the past doing tarot reading. And so... I'm not super adept when it comes to tarot, but I do know a few of the cards. And I know Mm. there is a card called the Hanged Man. And that card Mm. often depicts not what you'd expect, which is someone being hanged, but someone hanging upside down. That's true. Yeah. And I I will be fully honest. I had to look it up and see what the idea of the Hanged Man was, what the card represented. Do you know off the top of your head what it means? Well, I know that it's about being stuck in a situation that makes you unhappy. Yeah, and I think... That's pretty much what I had. Again, it's the idea of being, I mean, it's being trapped in a situation. It really is just being where you're uncomfortable, which would make sense for hanging Mm -hmm. upside down, not the most comfortable thing. But given what we now know, looking back on the episode as the connection between Lori and the Hookman, she was clearly in a situation where she was uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. which inadvertently summons the Hookman and leaves a hanged man, the symbol of being trapped where you're not comfortable. Oh, goodness. It's, and it's really interesting because there's also a parallel to be made with Sam here in terms of, you know, so the hangman here, what I'm, what I'm looking at, it says that it's about, you know, again, being stuck in a, in, a, in a bad situation, but also about needing to let go. Oh. Uh, right? Yeah. I just, I find it, this is so interesting. I had not seen that. I really hadn't seen the visual of the hangman. So thank you so much for bringing it up. It was something, I don't know why that card sticks with me sometimes. I think it's a weird, interesting card, Mm -hmm. like visually, because it's just, it it stands out in this this deck of cards that are also mystical or spiritual. Mm -hmm. Just a person hanging from their feet just seems so out of place and, well, awkward, which makes even more sense for the definition of the card now. (laughs) And seeing the person hanging that way before my research led me to knowing that was a classic in the Hookman stories really had me right away go to tarot cards and go, there's something here. Yeah, that's so true. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up. That's so interesting. So there's my critical thoughts for the day. (laughs) What have you got for us? Well, let's switch gears and talk about the pace of this episode. See what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) So the pace of the episode. We've touched on this really briefly earlier, but I thought it was an interesting Case in this episode because there's a lot of back and forth. Mm-hmm. They go on location to the library, to the police station, to the sorority house, to the fraternity house, uh, back to the library, to the church. Like there's just there's a lot of back and forth. Like geographically, they go to a lot of locations, and it's it's also strange because there are two murders, two attempted murders. And yet there's still plenty of time for interviews, for research, for bro time, and even for Sam development time. And it just, it's not a longer episode than the other ones, but it just feels long. Like it feels like very little happens, like it feels very slow, and yet so much happens. And I I don't quite know what to make of that. So something I did read about when I was researching the Hookman, it did lead to a little bit of research on this episode as a whole. And okay. apparently, this was actually meant to be the second episode. Ooh. 
Ooh, interesting. Go on. But Kripke felt it wasn't scary enough, so he threw it down the queue a little bit to give them a bit more time to figure it out and build the scare. So I'm oh. wondering if this isn't maybe due to overthinking and mm. over planning or that in an attempt to make it more scary and make the monster of the week that much more menacing, they didn't maybe cut some stuff out that would have maybe padded the episode a little more and given it a little more filling. So he may have just been overworked. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And I mean, I'm not I'm not complaining about the episode as a whole. I, I genuinely enjoyed this episode. Yeah, I really... We'll, we'll get to... I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but when we get to our crossroads, I'm still having trouble thinking of something. Yeah, no, and I, I totally get that. But... Well, you know, if we're going to speak of Crossroads, um, my Crossroads deal is very specific and I would like to discuss it now. Uh, not the not the deal itself, but the reason behind it. Mm. I would like to talk about Taylor Okay. in this episode, who is a black woman who seems to be pushing Lori down a path of immorality by, you know, telling her to change her shirt from a button-down shirt to a halter top that shows off her skin. And I just... I have thoughts. (laughs) Because, yeah. So if we start to tear that apart a little bit we're gonna notice that we haven't seen that many black characters in the story until now and we are pretty deep into the story now we're we're looking at this is episode seven and we haven't seen that many fleshed out black characters so this is one of the first ones that we see and i'm putting this in very very important air quotes like Mm -hmm. not only is she there to contrast with you know the virginial white character she also gets brutally murdered mm-hmm. yeah so i just it feels very much like a sex over sexualization and fetishizing of this black woman mm-hmm. who really was just trying to help out her friend to go out on a date and not look like she was going to study at the library yeah not that anything was wrong with what she was wearing at first but Clearly, Taylor was doing this to try and help her and, mm-hmm. and to help Lori, right? Like she wasn't, and she wasn't being, I hate to use the word pushy, but she really wasn't bullying her no. into wearing anything different. This is something, Lori asked her, you know, like, what should I wear? Yeah. If we step back one step from this and move away from, there are so many problematic things in just that yeah. opening scene of the two of them that like, yes, I knew it was going to be a talking point come, come critical time. But for a lot of the little things, you know, Lori does ask for advice. She Mm -hmm. gives her an option. She's very body positive and affirming her and saying, like, you you look great. This is a great outfit for you. You look hot. Even that line of don't do anything I wouldn't do. Oh, there's nothing you wouldn't do. Again, is open with her sexuality, is comfortable Mm -hmm. being who she is, is not hiding it or being ashamed of it, and is encouraging Mm -hmm. her friend even in that backwards way of saying, like, have fun, be yourself, do what you want to do, don't mm-hmm. hold yourself back because rules. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the character herself is so positive. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm distraught by the way that the show is treating this character, this female character, this black female character. They treat her like she's disposable. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it really hits differently when you think about the fact that she is the first black character on the show who's really had like any story content exactly. up until now. I think we brought up there's been what maybe the occasional cop or security guard mm. or yeah. like background character. We've never really had like a character who is integral to the story. And it hurts even more, I think, because her pain and her murder, her the, her brutalization is really there only to advance mm-hmm. the emotional growth or depth of a white character. And I, it, it, that doesn't sit well with me. No. Uh, yeah, like I said, very problematic both from the race angle and the, the gender angle of just the fact that, like, let's again go back into it. The fact that she has to be an overly sexualized character. The fact that she can't just be a friend. She has to be a sex symbol or a air quote deviant. Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be some angle because they need to sell the show to men. Because this mm-hmm. is 2005 and that's what TV is there for. Is to get, you know, teen boys watching the hot girl on the screen for a scene. Yeah, You know, it's it's the whole thing's Ugh. problematic. And then you factor in that yes she we keep saying she's the first black character with any actual like story integrity does she have a single line of dialogue outside of that opening scene line of dialogue no but she appears a bit later at the funeral like that's what we see her at the funeral like she's physically present i think i, I was gonna mm-hmm. say i'm sure i saw her there yeah. we then again like how weird is it that she's like i'm going to this house full of girls and like we're all gonna hang out tonight and have a little bit of a party and she's just full-on passed out at, like, a normal hour sleeping. She could have been awake. They could have had a conversation. They could have said something. She could have had a throwaway mm-hmm. line just to be like, I'm not an object. Look at me. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, she's just a pool of blood. With that in mind, are we ready for our Crossroads deal? Let's move on into them. So, like I said earlier, for me, my Crossroads deal would be be to treat Taylor differently as a character, to treat her more humanely. There's really no need to sexualize her, fetishize her, and then murder her in that order. Yeah. I would like to see that part of the story be different, even if it means that somebody else would have to die or, you know, like I'm I'm not too sure what that would mean for the Hookman story, but I, I would be willing to do pretty much any and all sacrifice for Taylor's story to end differently in this episode. Yeah, like, again, I kind of like playing this game a little bit of the what if. If we had to change that, or if I were now being forced to put your wish into Will, what I would do is I would keep Taylor as she is in the first scene, better management of her hopefully a little bit, and then maybe elaborate on that party they're at at the end of that uh, that return to the house and have one of the other girls have snuck a boy in or something and is, like, mm. taking him into the closet after spinning the bottle. And she's a little bit, like, irked by this because, it, you know, she told her dad there wouldn't be boys at the party. Now she's lying to her dad and it's all this mm. girl's fault. And then the next day, you know, they wake up and they, you know, oh, you heard them all night. And then you find out that the boy had left and it was the sound of her being murdered. That'd be better. Why don't I, why don't I write? Why aren't I a writer for crappy TV? Not Not insulting Supernatural or the writers, but, like cliche tv writing i love that shit (laughs) i mean honestly like at the end of the day if that like i said if that means that taylor's story ends differently i'm okay with it i am open to any and all suggestions for this to happen differently there was really no reason for her to be treated that way no agreed i hope we get more black characters with some better development 
I know a lot of shows around this age suffered from this issue, and the few shows I can think of where a black character finally steps in and gets an interesting role, it just feels so right. Mm. And you realize how much you've been missing it. Yeah. So good absolutely. on shows that at least learned their lesson and made a move. So hopefully... I'm not sure that Supernatural does learn that. Mm. But... Well, we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure we'll get something hopefully sometime soon. Yeah. Oh, we do. There's a there's an episode with a racist truck. Yes, we are going to get the racist truck episode. I am very excited for racist the truck. <laughs> which is what I'm calling it now. Racist the truck. <laughs> I love it. So... Coming to my Crossroads deal, I have made it very clear up to this point. I've had a lot of trouble figuring out what is wrong with this episode because despite the flaws we have found, I really thought this was a good episode. I liked the killer, the creature. I liked how they stopped it. I really liked seeing them properly salt and burn the body and actually get to put in some other practices. But I think they neandered a bit too much. Like we get a full montage of them sitting in the library researching twice And then we technically have a third version of that where they are again looking at old documents, the same documents they were looking at the scene earlier. The picture hasn't changed. It's the exact same printed page they're looking at. But now they're at the party and doing it. It's just like I think I had said earlier, it feels like there was maybe more plot and they had to drop some things to get some more scares or get some more gore or get some more action. And they Mm -hmm. then had to like cram these details back in. I think as much as I loved the Hookman as a creature and a myth, I would be curious to see the original episode two version of this episode. Ooh, interesting. Would it be worse? Would it clearly have different story elements? Because a lot of what we discussed today does revolve around Sam and Jess, and without mm-hmm. the previous episode and him kind of letting go a little bit, would this be able to have the same pull? Would it give him a different angle to go at? A lot of questions, but I'd be curious to see what this episode was initially meant to be with a little less scare. Basically, I want to undo the Crossroads deal that Kripke clearly made. (laughs) I mean, don't we all just want to see original (laughs) scripts for certain episodes of Supernatural? Oh my god, I know. <laughs> like I know that listen- there's one script in particular <laughs> that I want to see. For people listening who don't know what we're talking about, because this might be a little obscure, because I only learned about it an hour before recording, there were some moments of scripts leaking for certain episodes that may have given a little more insight into scenes that were not as flushed out in the actual filming. And uh, the fan base, those, those of you in the fan base who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. Those of you like me who are a little on the outskirts, when you finish the series with us eventually or on your own, look up uh, leaked scripts and see what you find. Oof, it's been a week, (laughs) y'all. It's been a week. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. Leave us a review on whatever platform you choose. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at CarryingWayward. And we always like getting voicemails at CarryingWayward at gmail.com. Let's keep this conversation going even after the show. Carry on our wayward friends.